Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. How do you find the sweet spot between spontaneity and training in performance? This week, the crew discusses the role of effortless movement in athleticism and how, in essence, it's a form of spontaneity. Could or should you be coached when you've entered this flow state and how best to harness the teachings of author Ted Slingerland and incorporate them into your next competition? This week, we talk all about the paradox of trying not to try. This is episode 277. Power Athlete Nation, what's happening? This is another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and, and Conditioning. conditioning. Mm. If you're hoping to hear about back squats and vertical presses today, I got news for you. You're wrong. This is a lovemaking podcast. John will be reading the <laughs> Confucian Handbook to Lovemaking. No, it's not the Confucian. It's the Taoist oh, Secrets yeah. of Lovemaking. Com- the Confucian one is pretty good, too. Well, yeah, because <laughs> it's all about teamwork. <laughs> and following the steps. Step one, pants off. Step two, carving and polishing. Belt off. <laughs> Step three, sleep. Yep, nap. Yeah. No, ladies and gentlemen, we have a killer show for you today. We are going to talk about what you're doing wrong. You're probably trying too hard, like Tex at the bar to pick up chicks. Right? Uh, like on Wade's Army, he's trying too hard. And surprisingly, mm-hmm. uh, in our little three-way battle... Luke is outraised both Kate and I and Mr. Uh, I'm going to shave my nipples for money, <laughs> McQuilkin over there. That's right, people. It is Wade's Army fundraising season, and we have three teams that you can contribute to, and only three teams. Uh, team well doesn't matter. Team I would well go with, I would just follow your chi, right? It's going to bring you to me. Uh, team Wellborn. So, ladies You'll and gentlemen. You'll get a special uh, signed picture of Luke Summers. Picking mm-hmm. his nose mm-hmm. and with his hands yeah. in his pants. Nose picking. And the booger will be wiped on your picture. That's how I do it, people. You get the full Monty. Now, that may be appealing to you, or is it more appealing to look at, I'm looking at Mr. Christopher Tex McQuilkin here and all of his hairy glory. I mean, this guy's got arm hair on him. Looks like all he's wearing a sweater. All I know is, <laughs> it's, I mean, what kind of sweater? I would say that's cashmere. It's a little brown sugar. Is that cashmere? Uh, you got a little uh, brown sugar little in that, uh, yeah, that bowl of right there? <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, All text. I know is whenever takes, takes his, uh, Tex takes his shirt off, all we hear in the distance is... Girls mm-hmm. whistling. No. Ow! Mm-hmm. Like, I can't do my Wookiee noise. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's the sound that gets made. It's just as he takes his shirt off. <laughs> I hear panties <laughs> dropping. <laughs> <laughs> Dudes in panties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like, God, Ashley's G-string is riding up my ass. Uh, so we are having fun, obviously, but people, it's for a good cause. Listen, we are, we, you know, once you start to give in to something that's a little bit bigger than you, uh, and this kind of goes along the lines of what we're talking about today in the podcast, but uh, you know what? You become a better version of yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, we support a fundraiser, or a, we are running a fundraiser for a charity that we support called Wade's Army. Our 501c3. Thank you, Federally, uh, you know, uh, non-profit. Non-profit. And we are raising awareness for the very nasty pediatric cancer, neuroblastoma. So if you haven't heard of Wade's Army, what you been doing? Listen, go to wadesarmy.org to learn all about it. But here's what you need to know. Check it out. We got links in the show notes. Get on our social media. Follow at Wade's Army on Instagram. Follow Wade's Army on Facebook. We have all sorts of information out there about how you can raise funds. And if you follow John, myself, or Tex on our social platforms, you're going to see us occasionally throughout the week raising awareness and fundraising. Listen, 
We take, this isn't like some other charity that's going to maybe go buy a fucking McLaren or some shit with the money that they raised. So, so we can't get a McLaren? Not, not yet, Damn but it. not even a party barge, John. Not uh, this year. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> we have, we basically have three, four texts, three or four initiatives that we are for. Four. So fill me in. So we are teaming up with Solving Kid Cancer to fund international research project a grant so we're donating two hundred thousand dollars towards this so you can contribute to that funding then we have our supporting neuroblastoma families so through our power athlete network there's a lot of cases of neuroblastoma that friends and families they connect us with families in the fight so they link us up with those families and if whatever we're able to provide financially we support them so that could be lost work that could be Anything from, you know, a, a family vacation to take away from the stress that is dealing with this cancer. Uh, we're also aiming towards changing the nutrition approach in hospitals, whether we build a smoothie bar, a kitchen, but something where we can educate kids, parents on the importance of nutrition and the direct correlation between that in your immune system and treatment. And then we have our Wade's Army operations. So we do have Woo. to buy the shirts. We do have to pack ship, do all that good stuff. So if you'd like to support that, so every other donation goes towards the funds, you can select exactly where your money goes to. That's important to me. It is because, and this is, listen, this might be a repeater, but it's a worthy repeater. Man, I just think of the hurricane in Houston, Red Cross, boom. Uh, John's buddy, um, J.J. Watt, started a, a J.J. Watt. Started a charity and a fundraiser that I think all that went to the Red Cross, right? No, no. I think he, uh, he kind of manned it a little. I, I don't know if he donated the money to the Red Cross, but I know he donated a ton of money towards the cleanup mm-hmm. and helping rehab homes. Uh, he has a website. I think he's pretty transparent about it. Now, I don't know. I mean, there's really no oversight. But of at the time, the so here's my thing. Is like at the time, I didn't know. Well, I, I wanted to throw some cash in. Well, it was like the Haiti deal where right. all of a sudden, you know, they get billions of dollars done and I think they've like Yeah, they literally... build fucking textile mills and like flip a huge profit yeah. instead of like help the Haitian fucking victims, right? So the thing is, it, you don't know and it, it, you don't trust it, right? So you don't know the authenticity, which again goes into what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. But here you do with Wade's Army, right? This you thing have is it. authentic AF. Yeah, you're talking to the people here. Who are who are doing the bookkeeping and cutting the checks? We don't, you know what? This is our side hustle. This is our passion project. We want to fucking make change, and that's the plan with it, right? Now enough on that. Let's talk about today. Tex, how hard are you trying right now? Oh, I, dude, I really connected with this book because I try way too too damn hard. Whether it's sprinting, jumping, or picking up chicks yeah, at the you're bar. Yeah, you're a well, guy. But isn't it because you're really shitty at all those things? Yes. <laughs> Especially the bar. <laughs> and if you just stop Well, trying. I've been to the bar with you, and, um, uh, you know, I mean... Yeah, double fish hooks. I don't First know. time I went out with you, you I got double fish hooked. <laughs> I don't know if you're, you know, uh, tired or what, but, you know, you just kind of <laughs> just kind of hang out by the bar and just kind of mosey. I put the vibe out. That's putting uh, the vibe out. Yeah, that, that is the vibe. The vibe, you're, the problem is... Uh, you're I, trying to put the vibe I don't out. That's know, the problem. I don't know if that vibe is... Uh, I'm tired or a serial killer. Well, 12 Modellos. Serial killer. 
12 Modellos, I try not to try. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a swing oil, right? Yes. Oh, we should have talked about that. We didn't, though, people, so you're hey, not going to learn about swing oil. You need oil. to go read uh, Neil Strauss's uh, The Self-help Game. book. No, so Neil Strauss wrote a book uh, called The but Game. We no, I don't know how that's we've, inauthentic. We've, we've talked about it, but I think if you, like, you can pull something. Now, it, now, I don't suggest you dress like a fool and go out and peacock and all that, but he makes some really good points. Is he a pinky... Pinky ring guy? Uh, like it's, somebody we know? <laughs> it's, it's John Wellborn, temporary pinky ring guy. <laughs> yeah. uh, I was a pinky ring guy there for about a week, and then I'm, I just realized I'm not a pinky ring guy. Uh, <laughs> but I think there's something to be said about putting yourself in the position of, you know, not, you know, like, not like Luke Summers where you need to be the life of the party. I don't need, you know? I just am. You know, like, you know, you're wearing your underwear around in your head, you know, at like, you know, And I didn't even try dinner. to get there. But like the idea of like, having fun, being the center of attention, trying to laugh and joke and look like you're having a good time, not just like the quiet dude over there just crushing beers like with your like holding up the bar. What's up? You look pretty nice. I'd like to get to know you. That's how you pick up dudes. Like me. <laughs> yeah, because weird like, dudes see it and they're like, hey, this it. guy's fucking weird. Let's be weird together. <laughs> looking dusty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for dusty crackers, that's what he's looking for. He's looking yeah. for the weird. Oh, it's so much fun. So much fun. All right. So, but we have the author on today of a book that text came across, Trying Not to Try. He was in the self-help section of Barnes & Noble, just looking to find a book to help him complete himself. And the he end came end. across this book, which is ironic because it's not a self-help book. But we have Ted Slingerland on today. Tex, how do we link up? Uh, honestly, the book. Yeah. So, Trying Not to Try and Furthering Research, dude, seamlessly and effortlessly and finding out what that means. Mm-hmm. And people are always asking us the difference between a known and a novel task and finding out, well, this sport versus that sport or this position, they couldn't quite grasp it. So just a little Google search, I stumbled upon the book, and I was, I was captivated. It was a different perspective than I've ever learned before. I guess never got into Confucius or Taoist, but John had some experience in college with this. Mm-hmm. So it was a, it was well, a fun, and, and fun also, read. And, and also what's ir- uh, some irony, you know, Berkeley guy, and, uh, you know, very similar, uh, you know, actually knew, like, as soon as I brought up the rhetoric thing, instantly he was like, oh, the modern rhetorician, <laughs> like yeah, postmodern you know, rhetoric. Yeah, he was like, uh, I, could you see the fucking oh, ear, like the yeah, yeah the, the flame in his eyes? I was like, oh, we're about to go battle, and then you know what? And then he he, he went on with his life. All right, so people, I'm excited for it. Hold on to your butts. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Where's hold on to your butts from? Is that Ju- your coach? Jurassic Park one. Okay, who? What did your coach say about something with my coach? Putting boots and uh, butts. Coach Walker. Putting D's and A's? No, no, no. It was sophomore year. Quarterback, it was raining during practice, and he, f- he f- kept on fumbling the snap. And so he's like, Coach, I just can't grip the ball. Grip the ball? I'll grip your ass. <laughs> all of us were like, what? <laughs> See, this is, this is, what, I miss I about, this is what I miss about high school football. All the random stuff, like uh, you're over there playing titty ball jack off, yeah. which uh, I didn't know for a number of years until you sent me a video of that uh, of of that guy who plays as professional sport in that weird country, and it's called Teddy Ball Jackoff. <laughs> yeah, uh, like a more mother favorite one is uh, when the coach told those guys, uh, "I don't know what the fuck you guys are doing out there. You look like you're running on an acre of tits." And I was like, "A what?" Well, an a- uh, I was like, "How do you run on an acre of tits?" The beauty is no high school football coach tries to come up with these. It's just <laughs> what comes it's, out. Comes well, out. high school football just, uh, flew, uh, I guess it breeds insanity of just craziness. Mm-hmm. I love it. All right. Let's get with Ted. Go.
Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to get on and chat with us here on Power Athlete Radio, man. Uh, I'm eager to jump into this because a lot of what you talk about in terms of just the behavioral pattern, we talk about in terms of optimizing an athlete's pinnacle performance. If they're ultimately mm-hmm. on the field trying their hardest to execute whatever their goal or task is, that's going to take away from all of the input that they have to calculate and process to react to a play, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess with, why don't we just start off? I'm going to hand it over to you uh, literally this time and just let our audience know who you are, where you come from and what you're what you're geeking out on. Yeah, so uh, so I'm Edward Slinerland, and I'm professor of Asian studies at University of British Columbia. But my background's really in philosophy, religious studies, early Chinese thought. So it's funny. The uh, it's athletes, the people who write me the most after reading the Try Not to Try book, are they're either athletes or improv people. Oh. People do comedy, <laughs> performers of some kind. And I think it's because, so, you know, the basic point of the book is that th- there are a lot of situations in life where the way to be successful is actually to not be consciously striving. It's to get into a state. This So I've introduced this Chinese term, wu-wei, uh, effort, I translate it something like effortless action. It literally means non-doing or not doing. But I think it effortless action is better because it's not a passive state. So when you're in a state of way, you uh, lose a sense of yourself. You you feel like you're not exerting any effort at all. You kind of get absorbed into what you're doing, and yet everything you do is successful. You're you're incredibly efficacious when you're in this state. So it's a lot like when athletes talk about being in the zone, right? They they uh, and athletes know that that's what they want to do. Right, they want to be in the zone. That's when they're at their peak performance. There's a the tension though is that if you want to be in the zone, you're not in the zone. Right? So and and athletes are also very worried about falling out of it. And so ch- essentially, what choking is in sports is when you're not in the zone and you know you need to be, and you're trying too hard to get back into the zone. Right. That's what choking is. And so it's th- you know this really hits on the head, I think the central tension, especially at high level athletics. So, you know, I, like I took up tennis about three years ago and in early stages of a sport there, you have to try, right? There's a lot of training. You got to drill, you got to learn how to do the mechanics, but there's a certain point where you need to forget about the training and actually just relax and, and do what you've been trained to do. And certainly when it comes to high level athletes, they've done all the training they need to do. And, and especially, you know, you think about especially individual sports like tennis or golf, where there's a lot of mental tension. I think what most competitions come down to at a high professional level is who's in way and who's not. Mm-hmm. It's about who's in got managed to get in the zone and stay in the zone despite the pressure versus the people who don't. Because when you're at that level, everyone's really, really good, right? They're super well-trained. They've been often training since they were children. So it's not about not being skilled enough, typically. It's it's often about mental, kind of, you know, we talk about mental weakness or choking. But what it's really about, I think, is a failure to stay in the zone and stay in this this sweet spot of spontaneity. In our our training philosophy, we we hinge what other training systems or fitness systems 
the tools that they use to either lose weight or get you stronger, right? More of a one-dimensional approach. We, we hang our hat on athleticism, which we define as a seamless and effortless combination of primal movement patterns through space to accomplish a known or novel task. The, it's okay. very dense. In I can't believe you messed up the definition. It's Did the ability it to seamlessly and effortlessly combine primal movement patterns through mm -hmm. space to accomplish known or novel task. Right. Uh, literally the same thing. <laughs> literally the no, same it's, thing. No, it's, it's just a joke. Uh, we did a, um, I'm John, but uh, we did this um, uh, deal where we had to get up and we were putting our course online and I had to give this uh, talk on athleticism and we started with the definition and I was not in the zone when I gave not it. Not at all. It yeah, was, yeah, it was awful. And I, we it's did like, like twister. we usually did like, a, I think we did close to a hundred takes and in a way it's started oh was like hey i'm john wellborn i'm here to discuss athleticism and we define athleticism mm -hmm. as and so yeah. it's uh and it's then, just it, and then it's, you start to choke right you mess it up a couple times it was awful but uh oddly hard. enough I, I remember the definition to the point where like uh, now it's effortless yeah now now it's seamless <laughs> and effortless yeah so good. it's just uh yeah. yeah it's kind of an ongoing joke but yeah so this is the tension right so you mess something like that up and you know you got to redo it and you know it's not going to sound good unless it sounds like you're doing it for the first time. But how do you make it sound like that <laughs> if you're thinking about it too much? That's the paradox. I call it sometimes the paradox of spontaneity or the paradox of new ways. It's tension of how you can consciously try not to try. Mm -hmm. But there's a, there's a life cycle to this, right? Because within within our methodology, we, we are just in the, the early phases of teaching our coaches the, the first segment of that life cycle. Right. About okay. How do yeah. we get to that pinnacle performance? How do we maximize an individual's athleticism if they were, you know, came into this world and were gifted the genetics of a trash can, right? And they just aren't an athletic person. How do we push them along that continuum to make them better? And mm -hmm. there is work, like you're saying, in, in this narrative, right? There is, there are things that we have to do, but at the end of the day, when we let them play or go out to apply these performance traits, it needs. It should be effortless. It should look fluid. Well, the, they uh, need to learn how to relax. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, go part, ahead. Of, part of the analogy I always thought about, especially with sports, was uh, a lot very similar to reading. You know, there's, um, you know, like you understand like letters and words and as you understand and you can define them individually if you went through and you learn those pieces. But when you go and you read, you don't necessarily break the words down and think about each word. You actually read the entire sentence and then the meaning of the sentence and the individual words going together is what makes it impactful. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. that was kind of the, you know, when I especially work with athletes and, you know, in my, pre my previous job, being able to break all the individual pieces down and be able yeah. to master and know and, you know, know the letters and know how to spell them front and back and go forward. But at the end of the day, you have to be able to go down and be able to, be able to speak and you have to be able to move fluid within it. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, the bodies of literature that I review in the book is there's a, there is a big sports psychology literature on choking. And they've, one of the best ways to get someone to choke is to have them break it down. So have a professional. So they had like really high level baseball players and they were like, you know, first just hit the ball and they hit the ball the way they normally do. And then they said, well, think about, you know, what you, what's the, uh, what's the angle of your bat? You know, how are you swing? Think about your, the arc of your swing. And as soon as they start consciously thinking about it, they can't hit the ball anymore. Sure. And so that's, that's, uh, when you have a skill properly developed, like reading your native language, once you become literate, actually focusing on the mechanics then interferes with your performance. So that's one of the ways that people choke because they started actually paying attention to what they're doing. You know, you could imagine being a stand-up comedian and then suddenly thinking about the sound of your voice 
mm-hmm. that would totally screw you up, right? Right, right. <laughs> so you're thinking about the specifics of your performance, that's your your debt. And well, so that's um, that's one of the that's one of the easiest ways to fall out of way. Yeah, I mean, especially like in uh, in high level sports, what happens? I mean, I, I played in the NFL, and I used to watch coaches do this constantly with young guys, where they would watch them out there, and they would come back and start coaching them and trying to give them too much information. And yeah. it was always information overload, and they would always end up just doing worse. And yeah, the thing yeah. was like, hey, man, you can't coach on game day. You got to let people go yeah. out and play. Coaching happens before it happens in the film room. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you just got to go out there. Even if you don't know what you're doing, just run over there and hit somebody and knock them down. Just go and play 100 yeah. miles an hour. Because if you start thinking yeah. about these things, it's going to make you tentative. It's going to make you slow. And that was always really a big division between when a guy uh, – and we would classify guys as young guys – which was not yeah. necessarily like uh, an age thing, but it was more in like their mental development. So a young guy was a guy who actually, you know, thought about these things. And then a, a more mature guy or an older guy would just go out and play the game. And I was a, uh, an old guy in my second year, whereas I saw guys in their fourth and fifth years that were young guys. Yeah. So, th- you know, one way to th- look at it is not necessarily that you can't coach on game day, but you can't give people conscious disembodied instruction on game day. Because you can coach. I think one of the takeaways from the, I don't explicitly relate this to, to athletics, but I think a takeaway would be you got to coach in embodied images. And like the way this is real for me. So I've, I'm now in my third year playing tennis and I have this partner I play with all the time, Ian. And we're exactly the same level. We're getting better. Every year we get slightly better. <laughs> and we one of the things we're working on is our forehand. And we just, both of us have this tendency to just kind of, shank you know we're, we get stiff and we're not doing the full motion of the forehand and at a certain point um for me it felt like when i'd hit it the right way it felt like i just was a bird with a big wing that just was sweeping through and i happened to hit the ball but it was really about the fluid motion um and he and especially ian when i see him hit the ball well that's exactly he looks like a big scary bird who's just crushed his forehand that i have to get and so um one one thing we started doing is if we see the other person getting tense again and stiffing up getting too close to the ball we just yell big bird big bird man and so and that i think helps because it's not it's not saying change your racket path or something where you're now engaging your conscious mind, it gives you an embodied image that you can then immediately try to emulate with your body. So I think it's actually in terms of, you know, you'd have to say game day coaching. When you're coaching and training, you can give them all the information they need about racket. You know, this is what we do when we take classes. They say, right. well, the problem is your, your racket angle's bad. Or, but I think on game day, what you got to do is use images, really vivid images that compress all that information about stuff like racket angle and things into just one image that people can get right away. Mm-hmm. And so. that all starts, I guess, that that aggregate image of all those little minute details start in training, right? So for the, for the coaches listening, those are the associations you start to build. And we talk about performance perspective in terms of our coaching and representations, I guess with peak and deliberate practice, a lot of the things you talk about in your book, we reference in, uh, we reference to our athletes as well and our coaches kind of teaching them how to teach people to move. Yeah. Yeah. It's gotta be, you gotta be using embodied images. So this is, you know, I talk about the disembodied myth. That's a big problem in philosophy and uh, Western philosophy for the last few hundred years. And it is this idea that the way to 
give people information is to give it to them in abstract form, right? So you give people propositional sentences and then they map that onto the world somehow. And that's not really how people learn. They learn through uh, imitating motions. They learn it through this kind of, you give someone an image, um, you coaching them, you're trying to tell them how to, let's say, ski. And there's a great uh, image in this book about cognitive linguistics, about someone learning how to ski. And the instructor said, just pretend you're, he was French. So pretend you're a waiter in a Parisian cafe and you're trying to carry this tray down the slope. He's giving him like an image that he can use that causes him to then do all the mechanical stuff that the mm -hmm. coach wants him to do, but it gives him one quick, easy image. Or like I'm a ocean kayaker. And when you first learn kayaking, you got to learn to um, keep your, you want to use your torso and not your arms. People are tending to want to use their arms and yeah, I definitely do that canoe or Big something. Ocean kayaker. Yeah. <laughs> so don't do that. And the way to not do that is <laughs> at least the image that I, it helped for me is, uh, I remember one instructor at one point said, just pretend you're, you got a big uh, box of eggs. So you're the way you're holding the paddle is this box, right? And there are mm -hmm. eggs in there. And if you collapse that box, you're going to break your eggs. And mm -hmm. if you do that, you actually, it forces you to really do the full torso twist when okay. you paddle and not use your arms as much. So it's, it's those kind of succinct images are really how people learn. And it's not, it's more clear, I think, in athletics because we're doing something physical with our bodies, but it's like that in anything. I mean, mm -hmm. it's how people learn math. It's how people learn philosophy. Um, so, you know, my bigger academic project in, uh, you know, in, in philosophy has just been trying to argue that this is how people think. There's very good evidence from cognitive linguistics and cognitive science that, the way we really think is not in this abstract way where we're processing information and then trying to relate it to the world. We think in images. And that means the best way to teach people anything, including sports, is, is through images. The proverbial visual learner versus other learning styles? Or no, it's not, not really. So visual learning, I think when people use that term is, is more narrow than what I'm talking about. That's about kind of looking at things when I'm using image actually in a, in the way they use it in cognitive science, where it's not just visual image, it's any kind of holistic image, which mm -hmm. could be a bodily thing. So not breaking the box of eggs. It's not really a visual image because you're not saying picture what the eggs look like. Right. Or, <laughs> right, it's right. asking you to have this kind of visceral image of what it would feel like to be in a kayak with a box of eggs in front of you. Right. And, you know, uh, and that's, a, that's an image in a cognitive scientific sense because it's a, it's a kind of holistic embodied um, analog image. It's not digital, mm -hmm. but it's not visual either. And, and the, the argument is that everyone learns and everyone reasons using images in that broader sense of the term. Gotcha. A big part of the book, you combine Chinese philosophy with embodied conditioning. You mentioned Wu, Wu Wei. Yeah. Did I pronounce that right? Wu Wei. Yeah. Wu Wei. And then you have Duh. Yeah. Duh. So yeah. talk to us about the connection between Duh and Wu Wei and embodied cognition. So, so embodied cognition is, is this movement in philosophy, cognitive science, religious studies, arguing that we're not disembodied minds kind of riding around in a body that happens to just be the platform we're in. Uh, the way that we think and the way we process information, the way we learn, the way we communicate is embodied all the way down. And what one of the 
ways that manifests itself is the way is that we think in images. So metaphors and analogies are not just in the disembodied view, a metaphor is just like a tarted up way of saying something that you could say literally and it would mean the same thing. The embodied cognition view is actually metaphors are irreducible. The, the image itself is what we're trying to learn and it's the image itself is carrying the information. And when you start thinking this way, you see that, for instance, philosophical debates in various traditions seem to be at, going on at this abstract level, but they're really about people with competing images. So I talk about the different strategies for Wu Wei in early China, and they're put in metaphorical terms. So you know, Mencius thinks that we have these spontaneous tendencies inside of us that we can nurture the way you have sprouts that you teach how to grow. You know, you got to water and you got to weed them, but you can't rush it. You can't try too hard or you'll mess them up. Uh, you've then got people like uh, Lao Tzu, the Taoist Lao Tzu, saying that we need to be like the uncarved piece of wood, the uncarved block, which is pure and natural and simple. And these images are not accidental to the arguments. They're actually, they are the arguments. And, and once you start thinking that way, you see how pervasive metaphor is. And so uh, that's, that's basically the embodied cognition position is that our thought is we think with our bodies and we use our bodies in a way you can look at it as, as kind of decoder keys for language when when people talk to us and this is the reason we can understand other languages because when we get an image translated accurately into english we resonate we're activating the same imagistic patterns when we read it so that's the basic embodied cognition position uh way effortless action fits into that because it's arguing that the way you succeed in the world is through your body. Having these kind of uh, trained patterns of behavior or action, you know, if you're an athlete, you have certain motor systems that have become automatized. You know, reading your native language, you've now automatized it, made it part of the way you are. So, that, so spontaneity, uwe, is, is the most effective way to move through the world. And then finally, there's this concept of duh, is unfortunately pronounced that way in Mandarin. Um, it's a charismatic power, charisma is probably the best way to do it. And that really gets to the social aspects of way. So there's the individual aspects where you're a tennis player and you want to be in the zone so that you hit effective forehands. You want to be an effective athlete. There's also this social element where when you're in a state when you're being spontaneous, people like you. <laughs> and people, and importantly, people trust you. People feel uh, bound to you in certain ways. Well, because it's and authentic. So, because it's authentic. Yeah, it's so, authentic. Yeah. I mean, so and people like, uh, like pe people like uh, naturally, I mean, from a, um, I guess you could say from a uh, subconscious point of view, like people that are authentic are, are honest. And, yep. uh, you know, and then people gravitate towards honesty and then, you know, and then you get in this whole, like, uh, you know, people don't know why they don't like you, but they know that something isn't authentic. Yeah. Girl and ain't then, right, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's another joke. When I played in the NFL, uh, there was uh, a guy uh, on our team and, and a bunch of the guys didn't like him. And I asked one of the, uh, he was a black dude. And when I asked one of the other black guys, I'm like, Hey, why do you don't like that guy? He's like, his curl ain't right. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, his, his hair just doesn't curl right. And I like kind of laughed. I was like, uh, I'm not picking up. And he's like, just telling you his curl ain't right. And so that became our de facto for like, something's right and we don't know. It, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but, but like the, uh, um, yeah. you know, and if you really look, uh, um, uh, 
you were, uh, you went to Berkeley? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what, what years were you there? Uh, I did my MA there, so 91 to 93. Uh, yeah, I went to, I, I got a, a BA and MA from Berkeley. So, um, okay. yeah, I was a rhetoric major. So I did a bunch of English, oh, uh, a okay. bunch of philosophy and Judith Butler. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and so uh, right. yeah, so but yeah, the uh, I always remember like. Uh, but you, you know, came, you came out of it surprisingly all right. Uh, yeah, I, I actually I loved it. It was you see uh, relatively normal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of my uh, I would say a lot of the people I, w I went to school with weren't necessarily normal. Yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah. I the rhetoric I've all, that, so the, the you know the kind of postmodern rhetoric stuff that's going on and at uh, Berkeley is, is in some ways completely antithetical to this embodied cognition movement. Yeah. That's, well, a, well, I, that's I, a topic I, for another show. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, as you're talking, I'm like, Oh yeah. my God. Like I was sitting there thinking about the abstract when you said we don't learn like that. And I can think of all of the courses and the discourse and everything that I went through that was based off of like extrapolating from these abstracts. I mean, from yeah, everything yeah. from yeah. like, you know, existentialism with Dostoevsky. I mean, it was like, uh, everything was reading these books and then having to pull out these abstract ideas and then uh, deduce arguments from them. And it was like, I mean, that. so as you're saying, yeah. we don't learn like this. I'm like, actually, my entire major uh, is was wrapped around what we did. Yeah, so yeah I know. It's, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it, so that's another, so another, another antithetical position to the embodied realist movement is this kind of um, strong post-structuralist, whatever you want to call it, postmodern social constructivist view that, what we are is linguistic beings, you know, so language determines us all the way down or culture determines us all the way down. And the embodied cognition movements fighting back against that and saying, no, actually we're embodied beings and we use language and language certainly shapes our thought in various ways, but our bodies also shape language in really important ways. And so, um, you know, it's not all about Float, free floating around with a bunch of signifiers. <laughs> we're actually, we have bodies and we're moving around in the world. Um, but that gives you, so this connection, so, you know, they didn't like this teammate for what, it, probably because he was a dick. Yeah, he was, <laughs> well, he was, he was, yeah, he was like, not, there's something about, about him. him. Yeah. Selfish or he well, there's, uh, really committed to the team. Yeah, I mean, guys, guys were selfish in there. And I, I tell these guys constantly, I worked with guys I didn't really care for. Uh, yeah. and wouldn't invite over to my house for Thanksgiving, but uh, I trusted them as players because uh, right, I knew right, that, right. like, you know, there was this uh, symbiotic relationship where they were going to go out and they were going to play well because, one, their their paychecks depended on it, and they had a bunch of, you know, illegitimate children they had to pay for. Yeah, so right. uh, that was, like, the constant yeah. joke that, like, you know, that the dudes with the most amount of kids played the hardest because they had, uh, you know, had to cover those checks. <laughs> they had payments, yeah. But uh, I just remember, like, that idea of being – you know, authentic, spontaneous, honest, uh, whether or not you were honestly doing it, but if you could portray that, and that was a pretty interesting thing when I, I, I kind of got stuck in this idea of like, w what do people like about certain people? And if you read, you know, uh, um, I constantly, we've given, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, how to win friends and influ influence people Dale by uh, Carnegie. Yeah, Dale Carnegie, yeah, yeah, the idea yeah, of like, yeah ask people about themselves. Don't be the first one to talk, you know, be, be inquisitive, be honest and like, you know, be sincere. And but that you have idea. to be doing that because you really want to hear what they say and not just because mm -hmm. you're trying to. Well, uh, yeah, problem. but I mean, how many times <laughs> did you, you know, you've obviously met people that, uh, you know, could give two shits, but yet play an excellent yeah. role of being able to do it. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. So, I mean, so the Confucian, um, it's interesting because this gets to the kind of difference between the Confucian strategy and the Taoist strategy. Sure. So the Confucians are basically like Dale Carnegie. So they say, here are some rules to follow. When you meet someone, ask them about themselves, you know, ask about their family, 
express interest. So they give you scripts to follow. And, but the Confucian idea is that if you, even if at first you're not, you really care how they're doing or about their family, if you do that regularly, you'll become the kind of person who starts to really care about other people. So they think that you need these social scripts that they, these things they call rituals. And we have all sorts of rituals in our daily life to get the internal state. So you, you first do the ritual and you may not be feeling it all the way when you start, but it'll change, it'll feed back on your inside and turn you into someone who's genuinely other oriented and kind. That's kind of, this is kind of like the way why we teach kids to say thank you, right? And I remember with my daughter, you know, when she's little, you always have to say thank you and she say thank you. And it's like, she's not <laughs> feeling, she's not feeling thank you when she says that, right? But the idea is if you train kids to do that, they eventually start to, at some point, it makes them realize, oh, that person did something for me and I should acknowledge it somehow. Mm-hmm. And then they genuinely are saying thank you and they become a more grateful person. Yeah, but I mean, uh, in child development, um, they go through a really interesting stage, and actually, gratitude is one of the la- is one of the later ones. Yeah. They, they don't yeah. learn that early on. Like their initial yeah. one and uh, is selfishness. I mean, because they have yeah. to be. You know, the, you yeah. know, the, yeah. the baby cries because they're hungry. They don't care that mom and dad. They just know that they need their needs met. And then as they become more self aware, they start getting more gratitude. And so, like yeah. you said, like you teach your kids to be thank you and to pick their stuff up and to realize what's happening around you, so that they're just not these fucking global uh, like. You know, I guess you could, uh, I could Big say, babies. like, yeah, just will like have no global awareness of what's happening around them. They just fucking, you know, bump through life, just assuming everything's going to get done. And right, so, like right. that, you know, that uh, evolutionary deal. And uh, I, I have two little girls that are almost seven, and like okay. they're, and then I have a little boy who's two, yeah, like two and a half. So, <laughs> like I, I, you know, I'm always like kind of looking at these stages of like self realization when all of a sudden they kind of get to it, and it's uh, it's pretty interesting. They're right at that kind of that point right now. Yeah, that's cool. So that's so the Confucian strategy is you give them scripts. The Taoists are worried about the hypocrite problem. So they're worried that, and actually the Confucians were worried about this too, that if you teach the people the scripts, they'll always use them to to signal that internal state without actually feeling it. Mm-hmm. And they'll become these kind of empty hypocrites. That's what the Taoists are really worried about. And this gets to this issue of like trust and authenticity. And so the the early Chinese story about why Wu Wei and Du go together is religious. So they think that when you're in Wu Wei, you're in harmony with heaven, you're in harmony with the Tao. And so this power heaven gives you Duh, so you can be successful. So if you're a Confucian ruler, people will flock to you. If you're a Taoist, it's what allows you to move through the world smoothly without being harmed. And people like you and kind of are nice to you. Uh, so it's a religious story. So what I'm arguing in the book is is basically what you you said. You know, uh, what a naturalistic explanation, a kind of modern scientific. If we don't believe in the Tao and we don't believe in Tian Heaven, is that people are worried about fakers. And I, the, probably the hardest, most uh, academic part of the book is near the end where I try to explain these cooperation dilemmas that human beings have to get over. Again, uh, you know, we're not rational beings. And so a lot of our behavior is tit for tat. You know, I, we have contract. I ask you to do this, you do it or not. But all of that explicit contract making and agreements, I have, I'm a football player. I get paid, so I need to try hard. All that goes on against the background of certain types of trust commitments where just assume things that are more unsaid and emotional. 
And those things require a commitment to work well. Um, marriage requires commitment to work well. Friendship, any type of friendship is not a contractual relationship, right? If I ask you, I, I really need help moving my couch because I'm moving and no one else is around and I know you have a truck. Um, it would be weird if you were like, okay, I'll help you, but let me just jot that down in my notebook so that, you know, I know I gave you, I gave you this favor. So you're going to, so that is weird, but we, but we all know people like that. I mean, we all know people and they're not good friends, right? Well, but I mean, we don't do that. You know, the idea is that you should be able to do things without expecting, uh, you know, some form of payment. Like you should just be able to do things for people and not expect things. But like my mother-in-law, for example, is the king of this. Like I constantly feel like she keeps score. And I always like, I tell my wife, I'm like, is she keeping score? She's like, yes, she keeps score. We've got a, yeah, I got a, in terms of in-laws, it's like, how many days late was the Christmas card this year? And then that comes up about three years later, like in, in 2012, you sent it three days late. And then, like, it boils over in this huge fucking, like, eruption Ooh, of... Oh, uh, the, uh, Mr. and Mrs. P, huh? Uh-huh, they, uh-huh. they uh, Oh, man, big, uh, big, big, big on timing, which, you know, the, the hypocrisy there is just absurd, but... Because yeah. <laughs> well, they don't send you a Christmas gift. Uh, don't even get me started. But you know what this sounds like, though, is uh, an elegant way to say, don't be an asshole. Like, that should be the contract, right? And that's yeah. how... Yeah. yeah, it depends. Yeah, it depends on how you define what being an asshole consists of. But mm. the, the upshot is that we 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 have reasons, very good evolutionary reasons. And I get into some of this uh, more technical stuff in the book for uh, needing to make commitments to others and being worried about the possibility that someone's faking a commitment to us. Mm-hmm. They're pretending that they love what we love, that they're a real member of the team, but they don't, they don't really feel that commitment. And the danger of that is they're getting all the benefits of being part of our team. But as soon as push comes, as soon as there's a cost for them, they're gone. Mm-hmm. When you need to move your couch, they're nowhere to be seen. And we're worried about those people. And that's why we like people who seem authentic. So when someone's, cause we can, when you are lying or you're saying something you don't really believe, you kick off little signs, physiological signs. Mm-hmm. You get a tick in your face or your pupils, your eyes slick a little way. The interesting thing is the early Chinese talk about this a lot. So the Confucians are worried about this fake uh, person, the person who claims to be a Confucian, but he's not. And their solution is interesting. They say, look at the pupils of his eyes or look at his, in Chinese, the yeah, these are called, yeah, uh, the tells. I, I have a the buddy tells. who's a, yeah, uh, yeah uh, like an FBI profilist and yeah, uh, yeah. can sit down and like has like 27 things that every human being does when they're lying and yeah, can yeah. like go through them like systematically and they send them into profile and like, you know, like interview people and literally yep. is a hundred percent accurate on it. And, uh, yeah, we uh, talk pretty extensively with him and you yeah. can't fool him. And it's yeah. like, Hey, yeah. um, so some people you, are really good at, at detecting it. Some people are naturally really good at it and no doubt like there's strategies you could learn, but there's also going to be, you'd expect from evolutionary theory that there's going to be an arms race basically. There's also, it'd be great if you could fake really well. Mm-hmm. And so I think human beings today are the end product or we're at a certain stage of this really long evolutionary arms race where humans got better at faking commitment and feeling things 
And we also then got better as a countermeasure of detecting people who were faking things. Mm -hmm. So I think like. um, So would you say that you're an evolutionist? Because, you know, Chris over here uh, thinks, you know, the Earth's only 6,000 years and, you know, we live from a uh, spaceship and the Earth is flat. The flat Earth is 6,000 years. (laughs) (laughs) The flat Earth is 6,000 years. That, that I think, is a topic for another show. Uh. But yeah, yeah, but yeah, I am a, I have all of this stuff is grounded in in evolutionary theory. Yeah. Um, and not just genetic evolution, but cultural evolution. So I think you know, that, um, evolution's not real big at Berkeley. They don't really buy into it, so they're big on the six thousand year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is so the the naturalistic, the kind of uh, non-religious explanation for this connection between da and Uwe is that we trust people who aren't who don't seem like they're bullshitting us. Um, the problem is then, you know, so then they they become attractive. So then the problem is if you want to be attractive, how do you get it? Yeah. And I, the, the, the example I use for this with my students that tends to resonate with them is dating, right? So you, it, there's a never rain, but it pours phenomenon. As long as you're trying to get a date and you're like out of the bar and you're like looking around trying to meet people, no one wants to meet you. <laughs> no one's attracted to you, right? And then, as, but as soon as you stop trying, if you just relax and chill out and be yourself, then suddenly people are attracted to you. Um, so then, how do you? So then, there are like these dating manuals that give you tricks for how to make you seem like you're relaxed and self-confident when you're not. <laughs> and so, this is this problem, right? You want to get the payoff. It, whether it's you know hitting a good forehand or getting a date, there are these benefits to spontaneity, and they could be biomechanical in the case of athletics, where it's just you perform physically better when you're relaxed, or they could be social in the case of things like dating or like building a team. So it's related to athletics, you know, building a strong team culture where you guys really feel like you're bound. But don't you have to invest the time on the front end to be able to get to that point? Like I had to do a ton of work, uh, you know, not only training, lifting weights, doing all the other little things so that I got to the point where thing where I could potentially be effortless. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if you go out and you're trying to, let's say, meet girls or whatever, and you lack confidence yeah. or whatever things, it was all the things that I did leading up to it. I mean, obviously playing the NFL is pretty easy for meeting girls oh, jesus here we i'm go. just telling you i'm just telling you any insecurity that you might have tends to go away when you're like oh and so what do you do oh, i play in the nfl oh instantly like yeah. uh, i don't know why people like you more but um yeah. that's just, why us d3 all-stars who are picking up chicks we got it that's yeah. me in text ladies and gentlemen d3 all-stars still picking up chicks. uh but i think if you do all the work on the front end i mean the issue comes down to everybody wants to reap the rewards but very few people are are uh, you know have the desire to do all the work on the front end so i think like um you know and you have to make a conscious effort like i mean you know you're talking about um you know like the effortless comes from having you know confidence that i knew what what to do with my job because i had i'd done all the stuff leading up to it but ted isn't that the confucius approach right carving and Mm -hmm. polishing wax on wax off yeah yeah so the confucian approach is you do all that work and as then as a natural result you should get into the state of spontaneity, you should internalize. One way to put it is you internalize these scripts that you've been training in or you become good through training. Um, and that's when you get the spontaneity and the charisma. Um, the, the Taoists, one way to look at it is that the Taoists are intervening. I, th- I think a plausible way to understand this is nobody denies that training is necessary. 
even the most extreme. So Lao Tzu is kind of the most extreme anti-trying person. He's the one, only one for whom Wu Wei might be best translated as don't try because mm -hmm. he's really trying to shut down the Confucian project. But even for him, his arguments only make sense if you assume they're being directed at people who've been training their whole lives. So mm -hmm. it's a kind of corrective. So I think the way to understand the no trying Taoist strategies is that they've got to be a corrective. Anyone who can read these books is an elite Confucian trained person. So mm -hmm. um, almost by definition, the teachings are aimed at them. The, and uh, so I think it's always, it's always got to be the no trying has always got to be a corrective to training that's become too rigid or has lost its purpose or, you know, has lost its authenticity somehow. I, uh, I'm, I'm just laughing because uh, uh, when I was at Berkeley I mean, years ago, uh, uh, I lived on um, down Telegraph. So I used to walk down Telegraph to, uh, to, to school. And I remember they were giving out pamphlets and one of them was the Taoist uh, Secrets of Lovemaking. And oh, some, God. And, oh, yeah. and, right. And so somebody gave me this book and I like, oh, all right. And so I put it in my pocket and then I got to class and it was like I had a big, you know, sprawl hall deal. And I looked yeah. and like uh, everybody in my class in front of me all had the pamphlet and we're all reading it. And it was just <laughs> like so anytime somebody says, you know, and they talk about doubt, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I read a pamphlet about that. And so did uh, 600 of the other people in my class. So this entire yeah. class, everybody's reading this and it was like a purple pamphlet. And uh, I just remember it was uh, their secrets of lovemaking were just being just be real lazy. Just mm. lay there. No effort. Okay. All right. All right. I'm and, doing and, it right. And uh, <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh yeah, like, uh, like the That's dead fish. Yeah. Like, and, and so at, at the end it was pretty funny. Cause I started asking people, I'm like, do you read the lovemaking book? And they were like, yeah, I was hoping for something really good, but, and they like, everybody had it, which is so typical of Berkeley, you know, cause people stand there, you know, they're like, yeah, yeah. they sound sprawl hall yeah. and they just give out shit. Yeah. And I just yeah, think it yeah. was so funny that the only thing that anybody kept was the secrets of lovemaking. Mm -hmm. I think Tex <laughs> wants me to ask you if you still have it. I'm asking for a friend. Yeah. Yeah. I'm asking yeah. my friend to ask ask for his friend. <laughs> well, back then, uh, you know, we didn't have Amazon. There was none of this. So you either had to get your information from Sparrow Hall or actually go to the library. And it was yeah, pretty funny. Yeah, you remember those days? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Like going down and like, I remember, uh, uh, do you guys remember like microfiche and all that oh, yeah. stuff? Yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. God. Sure. No. Sitting in the yeah. stacks, all that stuff. It's just uh, kids today. <sighs> They'll never know kids the joys but of sitting in the stacks. Full disclosure, I remember microfiche from Batman 1. Uh, <laughs> the scene where you've, Kim seen, it, you've seen it in the movie. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember used it, but I, I remember was trained on it. Getting an assignment and like they listed these like numbers and being like, "What are these numbers?" And like, "Oh, that's where you have to go and like pull it." And like, I remember in the stacks, like literally pushing this thing in and like going through it and being like, "Yeah." God, wouldn't this be so much easier if it was like in some other format? And like, so you're saying yeah. you invented the internet? Is what is that? What yeah. you're no, right Al Gore invented <laughs> the internet in his basement. But actually, we had the internet. It just took seven disks. Like you had to put them in the right order, and you got yeah. to this message board where people just posted creepy things. So that's mm -hmm. what the internet was. Oh, like the Dallas Lovemaking Manual. <laughs> no, that was handed out by some uh, weirdo uh, in like monk robes, handing out purple pamphlets. Uh, and I, I, it was, well, I mean, you, you guys have never been to Berkeley, like in oh, the summer, through, right? yeah, yeah, but, but, I, I still but, but like in right. the summer, Sproul Hall is by far the most interesting place on the planet. Like talk about like an explosion of culture and insanity. And, uh, like you just never knew what was going to happen. Like some, like there might be a dude standing on a milk cart and talking about the end of the world. And then another dude handing you, you know, Dallas love making secrets. Doing that. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Like uh, there was we, at least one guy declaring the end of the world. Uh, dude, I guarantee right now, if somebody's listening to this, you can go somewhere right now in Berkeley. There's at least one person sitting on a milk crate, screaming at everybody that the end of the world is coming. The sky's still falling, baby. 
Oh yeah, yeah. still falling. Yeah, and uh, it's just it, like uh, whenever people are like, oh, was, I'm like, actually, I think it was by far one of the most interesting places I've ever been, and yeah, uh, I, I really it. enjoyed it. And uh, it's just it's so ironic that as you're going through this, I'm like, this flies in the face of all of the stuff that I studied in college, which I think is super interesting. Yeah. So to, so to bring it back to away from lovemaking, Dallas lovemaking, team building, <laughs> right? It, you know, the work is important, right? So you, and usually the way that that, the trust happens is through working together, right? So you get people, I mean, the, so the military is really knows, has known about this for a long time, right? Throw some people together and then you terrorize them. You do really horrible things to them. You make them go through all these physically demanding and psychologically demanding experiences. And ideally, what you'll get is a group of people who are bound together and who actually will then become true team members. They'll sacrifice for each other. They'll, they'll, they won't think about cost themselves. And it seems to me that in, in team sports, that's what you need to develop especially, you know, if, you, if it's a team sport where people are all out together on the field and they're having to interact in a way that's cooperative and where it's, you don't have a bunch of individual showboaters who all happen to be physically present together, but aren't working together. You that's, have to have that's why teams go to training camp. I mean, uh, we, we, yeah, we've always said it yeah. like triple days, everybody shows up in shape. Like everybody makes yeah. a conditioning test. The reason that teams go to training camp is to build camaraderie because there's always camaraderie and, and team unity and shared suffering. So, yeah. yep. uh, you know, yeah. if, you know, when they get rid of training camp and they've like, you know, kind of neutered it in the NFL, you'll just never see the same camaraderie of teams. And the teams that are successful have just been together a long time. Like, you know, like the Patriots, for example. Mm -hmm. But yeah, uh -huh. I mean, it's like, you know, that's why guys go to, uh, you know, basic training and there always has to be some, you know, some form of, uh, I guess you could say like high watermark or some form of trials and tribulations for people yep. to go through to kind of bond together. Yeah, there's good evidence. So, you know, one of the things I work on is cognitive science of religion. So we're studying how religion creates social bonds and how religions worked in human life, uh, but through doing experiments and looking at history in a systematic way. Um, and there's in the field, there's actually a lot of good literature on this team building and kind of pain, costly displays and pain and also synchrony. So it's surprisingly effective how getting people to just physically do the same thing in synchrony helps them feel more bonded together and more like they're part of the same group. Is, uh, are, are you finding that religion obviously not nearly as prevalent as it was 50 or 100 years ago? It's true. So um, one of the arguments of our, we had a big grant that just ended um, where we were looking at this issue. One of the things that's happened is secular institutions have taken over a lot of the work that religion used to do. So when you didn't have reliable police force or judiciary and you had to kind of deal with things yourself, you needed to bind people together really tightly. So that's when you get strict orthodoxy. That's when you get angry, punishing deities. That's when you get people doing costly displays and showing that they're part of the team and tattooing their faces and cutting off the foreskin of their penis and, you know, uh, foregoing delicious food, even when it's around in the environment. Once you get uh, institutions that can take over a lot of that work, there's less pressure on religion to do that. And so one of the argument is one of the reasons why you see increasing both. It's actually people are a little bit uh, deluded. So people think that religion's declining and people are becoming atheists. It's actually the case that organized religion is mm -hmm. declining and people are becoming kind of loosey goosey spiritual 
spiritualists. They're studying Taoist love manuals. You know, <laughs> they're doing. Uh, but they're, you, you know, know what? Like I, I think uh, organized religion. Um, I think there's there's other things. I mean, I think people came for organized religion for community. Um, yeah. You know, if you look at you know uh, you know people really function in kind of uh, collectives and groups and like you know people need community. You know, not nearly just for uh, support, but also for like counterpoints to know that like, am I fucked up? Okay, well these guys are like me, and uh, I, you know now I know kind of like what my level is. And I think without that, people just kind of tend to go off the fucking reservation. And so I think yeah, now see. today we're not we're seeing like you know things like um, I mean geez, like, uh, you know, your local gym, I go on, you know, let's say you go to a CrossFit gym and now like, you know, that's where I go and, you know, on Saturday morning and go and train. And like, this is part of our community in this, instead of before saying, Hey, you know, this is yeah. the church and this is how I was connected for us. It yeah, was sports. So, so people are a lot of what people are doing are kind of, uh, cobbling together. So, uh, people still need frameworks. And what I do actually talk about this a bit in the try not to try book that, um, you really can't get into Uwe unless you care about something. And this is where I think the concept of Wu Wei is different from ideas like flow. So, you know, uh, Chiksumihai, Mihai Chiksumihai's idea of flow. They're picking out, I think they're both zeroing in on the same state. The difference is I think Chiksumihai's concept isn't picking up the fact that flow and Wu Wei, whatever you want to call it, only works when you really care about something. So you get absorbed into whatever it is you're doing. And in traditional societies, that thing you're getting absorbed into is often an organized religious practice and community. But what's I think new about the modern West is people are fragmented and people are cobbling together. People don't just get one framework from their society that they get absorbed into. They're like building their own little custom frameworks from a little bit of CrossFit, a little bit of I'm a vegetarian, a little bit of this other thing I do. I'm a, let's say I play ultimate Frisbee. And so I get some team building there. People are creating their own frameworks out of lots of little pieces, but that they only have the luxury of doing that because their physical safety and well-being is pretty well taken care of yeah, by these yeah. really strong secular institutions. Um, it's also interesting that the U.S., when it comes to organized religiosity, the U.S. is still really high on religiosity compared to other wealthy nations. So if you look at um, you know, gross national product and religiosity, it's a straight line going down. The richer you get, the more secure you get, the less religious in an organized religious sense you get. Mm -hmm. And then the U.S. is way up here. It's a complete outlier. And I, my personal theories and sociologists have, have argued this, and I think it's right, is the U.S. is wildly insecure compared to other wealthy nations because of lack of health care. And just it doesn't have the same kind of social safety net. Mm -hmm. And so, so organized religions are serving a function that's very similar to what they did in the middle ages in Europe, where they're where you get your health care and kind of uh, social support because the state isn't giving it to you. So I, I would predict that if the US ever introduced what we have in Canada, universal single single payer health care, within a generation or two, you'd see it, you'd see the US kind of fall into line with other wealthy nations in terms of organized religiosity. That's interesting. Uh -huh. I, uh, so organized religions right. behind everything. Sounds like a conspiracy I should uh, self-propagate. <laughs> yeah. That right. flat earth. <laughs> yeah, Tex. <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> flat earther. But that's but it's you know the relevant stuff to the the, the team building and sports thing is this sense of um, if if you get people and they're part of a team and they've really developed a sincere, authentic sense of being part of a team, they're going to be able to work together in a new way fashion and be more effective as a team mm-hmm. than if they don't have that kind of absorption. I, and, uh, and the trick is how you get that, right? We taught a ton, I mean, geez, we've taught a ton of seminars around the globe and um, I was flying to, I think it was either Denmark or, or, or uh, Sweden and I sat next to, um, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was a Danish guy, but I remember we were flying to Sweden, uh, to Stockholm, and uh, we struck up a conversation. He's like, I don't know how the United States could ever have a uh, healthcare system similar to what we have in, like, you know, like the northern countries. And mm-hmm. uh, I was like, great, let's talk about it. You know, we got a long plane ride. Let's get into this. It's like, you guys have uh, no vested interest in each other. So in, you know, where we're from, if somebody's out of shape or you're fat or you're sick or whatever, we look at it as like a drain upon the the country and that, you know, being healthy and getting outside, riding your bike, taking care of your uh, kids um, and like having a healthy lifestyle is contributing to the greater good. And Mm -hmm. uh, there's like this kind of national identity of this, whereas the United States, we're, we're in the U.S., you guys have no national identity. And he goes, I wouldn't want to be in a healthcare system, uh, like a socialized healthcare system with anybody in the United States. Yeah. But I I mean, Canada, Canada is a counterexample to that. So Canada is an immigrant. So there are these nations like Denmark and Sweden where they're all just a bunch of tall white people. They all look exactly the same. And they're all pretty fit. And and they're all, and uh, yeah, I mean, they walk more than, than Americans do, but it's easy to get uh, support for social safety net when people all look like you. There's good evidence on this. And, and so that's when one of the challenges with them, for instance, have integrating immigrants into their societies. Um, but Canada is like the States in the sense that it's an immigrant country, right? So we all came from some point somewhere else, most of us, except First Nations people. Um, and so we have a single payer healthcare system and it seems to work pretty well. And in terms of both our origins as a nation and our makeup, we're like the states. I mean, you know, people don't all look the same here. Um, so I think that's a counterexample. But it certainly is easier to get um, support for social safety nets off the ground when when people are tribal and people use mm. all sorts of things, race, accent, actually it's surprising that accents the most important. So, um, there's interesting studies with kids where, well, you have no Canadian probably, accent. How come are you Canadian? I, I'm American originally. Oh. So I'm from, I'm from New Jersey, uh, originally. And I can pull out the Jersey accent. <laughs> where, when, uh, when, uh, when, where, when in Jersey? <laughs> where in Jersey? Uh, North Jersey. I grew up, I was born in North Jersey and okay. then moved down to the Jersey shore for high school. And I no, I used to, to live in South Jersey when I played for the Eagles. Where, where did you live? Uh, I lived right like uh, off 38, like uh, uh, Mount Laurel, Morristown. Uh, Morristown. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can picture that. Yeah. yeah. Like, Tom, uh, I went to high school on Tom's river. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, like uh, right off, like uh, what was it? Uh, one ten of the jug handle. Like there was a bar. Yeah. Right yeah. There. The jug, you know what a jug handle is. Oh, yeah. Definitely- yeah there, there was a bar down the street <laughs> called the jug handle. Cause it was on the jug handle, which, you know, is always pretty good. That's yeah. funny. Oh yeah, but, no, I know that area. You know, so people use there's uh, interesting uh, research on accents. People use accent as a group identifier in preference to almost any other type of information, dress or even skin color or things like that. And it's because it's so accents so hard to fake. So it's the kind of thing if you don't have it by age eleven, you're not going to have it. 
And uh, there's been studies with little kids where you know, there's a trust game where they have to do something where it involves them trusting a stranger. And the stranger could look completely different for them, totally different race, wearing the weird headdress, completely dressed differently. But if they speak with the same accent, kids trust them preferentially to people who don't have the same accent. Um, so it, it also shows this kind of worry we have about knowing who our in-group is, who's not part of it, and using the spontaneity as a group marker signal because it's we, we're focusing on something that's hard to fake. This goes like totally sincerity. towards my mistrust of anybody that has a Jersey accent. If I hear the South Jersey, the Shua accent, like yeah, water ice, oh gosh. Yeah. Instantly, yeah. I'm like, oh. That's funny. No, I, so I moved to California when I was 20 and was there for 16 years. So I think that kind of flattened out my accent. And I was too old to pick up a Canadian accent when I moved here. So. Um, but it's funny, my daughter was born here, but I think because she has us as parents, she's not, she's not developing the typical BC accent, which is very distinct. Yeah. 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 No, my, my uh, mom's from Vancouver and all my cousins live, uh, live on the Island and okay. uh, all my family. Yeah. They all live on like Vancouver Island. My cousins. They've so. got that strong BC accent. Well, yeah. Well, they used to live in Nanaimo, so they kind of had that, uh, yeah. you know, that yeah. accent. So yeah. yeah, that's funny. Yeah. So it's, you know, cities are funny places because people get. Um, taken out of their little small groups and they have to homogenize. And so it's, if you're in Vancouver, you don't hear that BC accent very much. And when you hear it really strongly, it's people who grew up on the island or they grew up in the interior somewhere. People who grew up in Vancouver itself don't develop that strong accent. And I think it's because they're having to constantly interact with people with different accents. And so they, they kind of flatten out. And same thing with people who move around a lot. But we still manage to have healthcare. <laughs> uh, it, I mean, is the healthcare system good? I, uh, I've always, I've, I've heard always conflicting things with it. Uh, you know, I've heard some people say it was good. I've heard other people say it was awful and they come to the States to get elected, you know, any type of, uh, surgery done. It's not good for elective stuff. So yeah. I'd tour playing tennis. I'd tour, um, it turned out I tore my meniscus. Um, and when I went to my doctor, she was like, okay, so to get an MRI is going to be you know, probably six months, seven months. And then if it turns out something's happened, surgery will be another probably year or two because a middle-aged professor who can't run is not like super high on the schedule. And she said, you're going to get bumped. Anytime someone with a real problem comes along, they're going to bump you. And so in that case, I had to go to the private system because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to exercise. So for elective stuff, it's not good, but I, I would trade that no problem for the fact that everyone... I see on the streets has healthcare and basic. If there's something really wrong, you get healthcare. Mm -hmm. So I think overall it's cause I'm coming, I was coming from USC in LA where I had the gold plated healthcare. You know, I could go to the USC hospital for free. It was hundred percent covered and I could get anything done. And I was a professor. They were my colleagues. So I could call up and say, Hey, get me in. So compared to that, it's not as good, but I was in like the top, 0.3% of people in terms of my health coverage mm -hmm. in the States. So it's overall much better here. So I guess in line with healthcare, this is self-care. I want to get yeah. into self-help. So the science has always fascinated me and people fall into these traps or they're always coming to us with, have you seen this guy or heard this guy or heard this story and try to show us this new model. So is there any science or traps that, that you've witnessed for the self-help gurus out there that are trying to hack, show people hacks for 
you know, feeling confident and not trying. Yeah. Um, so this, this is one of the issues with my book actually is that they marketed it originally as a self-help book. And people who thought they were getting well, that's how Tex found it. He's big. He helps yeah. up in the stuff. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, there it. you go. So at least it made it to you guys. So it got marketed <laughs> as a self-help book. And then a lot of people who thought it was going to be like 10 steps to a more spontaneous life get, were pissed off because there are no 10 steps. Mm-hmm. And but the conclusion I come to at the end of the book is that this paradox of how do you try not to try doesn't have a solution. And if it did, it wouldn't be a paradox. <laughs> the reason right. it's a paradox is because there's, and I, and I explain scientifically why it's a paradox. So the, when you're trying not to try, the part of your brain that you're activating is the part you need to shut down. So trying not to try is just neurocognitively directly a contradiction. And so what does that mean? Do we just throw up our hands and say we can't do anything? There's, there's people in, faced with this paradox have come up with a bunch of workarounds. And by definition, they're gonna be indirect. By definition, they're not gonna work all the time because your conscious mind's constantly trying to come back in. But that's where I think that, you know, so I walk people through the various, one thing that I do have is here's various types of strategies you can use. So the carving and polishing strategy, here are the advantages of that. This is, these are the situations or life stages where maybe it's helpful. Here's the stop trying be like the uncarved block strategy. Here are situations where this could be useful. So I think all you can really give people, I think the best thing you can do for people is direct their attention to a problem that maybe they haven't seen clearly before. Mm. So I think that if you don't realize that there's this paradox of trying not to try, if you don't realize that spontaneity is so important, you can't even start trying to figure out a way to solve the problem. <clears throat> so I think the, the most people can offer is a is pointing people's attention in the direction of a real problem in their lives and then diagnosing the problem, explaining this is why it's a problem and this is why it's useful to solve the problem. And then say maybe, you know, here's a bunch of different strategies that have been helpful to people at various times in various places. But there's no, you know, magic formula for becoming an instant Zen master. And if there were, we wouldn't value spontaneity. If you could just turn it on like a light switch, it wouldn't be a very good signal. If you could immediately start talking with a Southie Boston accent, Southie Bostons wouldn't trust other people with accents anymore. Because the, the fact that it's hard to do and you can't turn it on, the light switch is why it's a good signal. Mm-hmm. And so it's inherently resistant to any kind of simple 10 step solution. And so this is where I worry about self-help books. And I, I think in a way they give you uh, false confidence that by buying, spending 15 bucks in this book, you're suddenly going to be able to solve your life problems. But is all it these one of books- the best selling book categories? Yeah, no, I think oh, yeah. uh, uh, diet and self-help books far outpace anything else. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, so, but so you're saying we got to combine them. Well, we'll have, <laughs> have you guys ever read any diet books? They're usually uh, self-help empowering. Like there's always like, you know, like, like Rob Wolf's book, for example, New York Times bestseller. There's a whole story that goes with it, his trials and tribulations, the heroic, you know, his uh, Beowulf-esque, uh, you know, ascent from sickness to health and then this. And now I've done it. So you can do it, too, if you follow these steps. I mean, that's how yeah. you write these things. I, um, I, I got hit up to write a book, uh, a nutrition book. And when they explained to me 
uh, how it's written in uh, the deal. I'm like, so it's basically like, a, you know, show like here, I did it. Now you can do it too kind of yeah, deal. Yeah. So, I mean, that's how they really work. So yeah. I don't mean to pull back the curtain on it, but like, you know, the majority <laughs> of this stuff is like, you know, people aren't going to make a life change or, you know, you don't really care if they make a life change, you want to buy the book. But if they're going to make a life change, they have to know that somebody else did it. Very few people uh, struggle with being the first one to do something. Right. And, and but the, it also shows that all the abstract information in the world isn't going to help you. So you can have all these, you, know, you can have a library full of dieting books. It doesn't mean you're going to actually lose weight. You've got to have a kind of, um, you, you have to have an image that helps you. And so, so these things could be useful if they give you images. So I did it. Here's how I did it. That could serve as an image to you. That's how traditional religions work, right? They give you these heroes or they give you these exemplary figures and they say, here's how they did things. You could be like them too. So the images can be helpful in those ways, but the image has got to grab you. And that means you've got to at some level care about solving this problem in a way that people can't give to you and that you can't buy on Amazon. You just, you've got to actually really want to lose weight or get in shape or whatever. On it. Yeah. So, I mean, I had, so I gained a lot of weight after I was a wrestler in high school. So I was always kind of in shape through, you know, early adulthood. And then after my daughter was born and I just went downhill and I gained all this weight and I got out of shape. Um, and it was, it was, uh, an image that actually broke me out of it. Um, it was having a colleague of mine who is famous in our field for being kind of heavy and out of shape and, um, come up to me after a talk and pat me on the belly and say, Oh, Slingerland, good to see you're finally catching up with me. Uh, and I was so hard. I was so horrified to me. I was like, oh, what Jesus. Have I, what's happening to my life? And that shocked me into like actually paying attention to what I was eating again and starting to work out again. And all uh, the self-help books in the world wouldn't have helped you, but like yeah, that one that kind moment. of pivotal moment, I mean, and, and I'm sure, yeah. you know, we talk, we, uh, I refer to these as eight mile moments. Uh, okay. you know, from the movie eight mile, I don't know if you ever seen yeah. it, but you know, yeah, yeah, I've heard, yeah. so I, I always, uh, I have a theory that you can trace your life back to a series of eight mile moments that either you, okay, e okay. either you, you know, were the, you know, the hero or the goat, whatever it went back to, but everybody can go back to these series of different moments. And, uh, like those moments were pivotal. And when you go back and you think about successes and failures and whatnot, and what you learned from them and how you go deal, but like, you know, and I've gone back and traced all of them. And then we run into people that are like, I can't even remember anything in my past. Like Harry Shaw said, and he's like, I remember nothing in my past. How do you remember all these things? I'm like, because they're the pivotal points of my life that allowed me to go where I'm at. And so that's like a, for me, like the, um, I'm also a believer that you don't know where you're going unless you know where you're come, uh, come from. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, like constantly yeah. like looking at the history and always thinking like, Hey, this is where we came from. These are the mistakes you made. These are the successes. How do we continue to move forward if you don't know your past? Yeah. And these moments are pivotal because what they do is give you genuine motivation, right? There are a moment when suddenly you're like, Oh, this is something either, I, this is something I was doing wrong and now I need to do it right. Or it's discovering something that you love or that you admire that you didn't realize you loved or admired before, but it's that genuine motivation that, so in the Confucian scheme, it's funny because Confucius is telling you do these rituals over and over again and just do them, shut up and do them basically is his strategy. But he also thinks that unless you are motivated on the Confucian way by some kind of like incipient desire to learn, you're, it's never going to, there's nothing for that training to grab onto. It's never going to work. 
And so he's got, he does, he has these passages where he says, shut up and just do it. But he's got other passages where he says, um, you know, unless you're, unless I give you three corners of the square and you come back with the fourth one, I can't teach you. Unless you're coming to me saying, what can I do? What can I do? I can't teach you. And so there's got to be that moment when you acquire the genuine, uh, at least beginnings of an internal motivation to, to learn something or to do, achieve some goal. Without that, you're never going to get into a state. You're never going to get to achieve it in a spontaneous way, fashion. And so this is what you talked about, disembodied myth of goals, right? Yeah. What, what we're missing, I guess, is that passion that, for the process versus the, the end marker. Absolutely. So, you know, the disembodied model can just, so the disembodied model would be, how would you get an overweight 40 year old college professor to actually cut some weight? Um, well, let's provide them with statistics on health risks, you know, at each weight level. Let's give them some abstract information. That would, that's the disembodied view. And let's give him some books on how he could lose weight. Here are some never diets work. you can follow. Never it would never work, work right? No. The only thing that works is someone is me having an image of becoming someone who I was in my mind well, was like, oh, actually the most powerful one, uh, the most powerful one. And, uh, when you run into people that end up like making a life change and like, Hey, like, you know, you're heavy. Now you're thin. It's always yeah. what people ask you is what, did you have a health scare? Like yeah, it, it, yeah, it's yeah, always yeah. like whenever you run into somebody who's made some life transformation or they've lost weight, they've gotten shape. It always comes yeah. on, uh, some form of like, you know, uh, I had a heart attack. I got this. I mean, it's always something drastic. And like, mm -hmm. whenever, uh, I can think about the people that, um, you know, I, I have a, a, a client who's worked with us for years who was like, I mean, Mike was what, like 350 pounds. And he, uh, he got invited yeah, before to my be, time. yeah, like he would be, he got invited to be in a wedding. And like the uh, wedding was like a year out and he was at the uh, engagement thing and they like showed like a little video and he was like watching this video of himself and he was like, I am so fat. Yeah. And, and he was like, like he was horrified and he thought like, I don't want them to, you know, play the video of their wedding and me. And he ended up losing like, you know, 250 pounds or 200 pounds or right. something. But uh, I just remember the majority of people that have whenever I get an email or somebody who's looking to make some major life change, it's always coming on the heels of some like you know, pivotal news of like, you know, I got sick, I had this, my dad died. I mean, it's always something dramatic is like what pushes them over, not just like, hey, or, or an insight. It sounds like this guy actually got to see himself from the outside the way other people saw him. It was like, holy shit. Well, I, <laughs> I'm fat, I, right? I read a, a study that talked about um, if you look in the mirror, our, our brain has a defense mechanism to protect our ego. So we'll always imagine ourselves as better than we are. Yeah, and, no, uh, I'm pretty good. I'm all right. Yeah, yeah, like, except, for, except but, for him. He's, he's just as yeah, But it, it, it was pretty interesting. And like, I like, cause, uh, I, the, the way it came up is like, um, uh, like, uh, you know, how come when I look in the mirror, it looks different than what I see in pictures. And it was, yeah. and this guy went back and said, you know, there's this defense mechanism that we have within our brains that like protects our ego. So we'll always mm -hmm. imagine ourselves to be better than we are. And that a picture is a true representation. And I always thought about that. And I was like, well, you know, like, I don't look that bad. You know, you can stand the right way and you do whatever. And then all of a sudden you see that picture and you're like, oh, I'm a fat fucker. I got to do something. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's, you know, a great motivation. And he always kind of kept that and like he's kept the weight off and like he busts his ass and trains. He's probably going to listen to this podcast and text me like, hey, you fucker, why'd you tell my story? But like, uh, <laughs> right. I always have a ton of respect for uh, for what he went through because there's so many people that aren't willing to like look into that and, and really just, you know, do the work that it takes to get there because it's not an easy process. Yeah, absolutely.
there's got to be about authentic motivation. Yeah. And I guess about that motivation and building that image, maybe the near death scare or like the terminality of life is probably the most powerful imagery. Like there's nothing after this moment. I have to change something. I mean, it, would it yeah. go in line with a lot of what you're talking about? Yeah, just, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can get that genuine motivation. It mm -hmm. could be dramatic health scare. Um, it could be, um, you know, an actual sickness where you get, you know, you your mortality. You have an abstract knowledge that you're going to die. Mm -hmm. But if you actually really do almost die or yeah. like you. So I, I was really sick about a year and a half ago. Uh, it's kind of mysterious thing. It probably turned out to be a, a mosquito borne virus, but my kidney started failing, like my eye, it spread to my eye. There was a period where I was like, huh, no one knows what's going on and maybe I could die. And that, I made some life changes right mm -hmm. after that, just because, you could, again, disembodied myth would say, all you have to do is show people, you know, the actuary tables and here's the average lifespan of a man in your society. And you're like, okay, I probably have 70 years altogether. You can know that abstractly, but that doesn't motivate you. The only thing that motivates you is this kind of visceral yeah. experience of your mortality or, um, well, I've, I've also come uh, realize that I don't think that death is truly a motivation for people. Like, um, that's an interesting one. Like I always thought it was like, you know, Hey, like you better get on living or, you know, get on dying like Andy Dufresne. Right. Uh, but I've come to the conclusion that death isn't necessarily a motivating factor for most people. I think it's the idea of, of not being able to do what they want to accomplish. For a second, I thought you were going to say not being alive. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of the Taoist secrets yes. of love making. Yes. But, yes. but, but that idea of like, uh, I mean, would it be better to be alive and just be like a, um, you know, like an invalid who can't move and just stuck, you know, within your, I guess, you know, the, you know, the idea of like a, you know, soul and a vessel in the Hindu sense, just stuck, you know, with a broken vessel or, you know, but you're totally alive or pass away. I mean, for me, I would think that like death isn't necessarily the motivation. It's more like, you know, well, why do you train? Why do you go out and do all these things? Cause I want to be useful. I want to be able to accomplish things. And, uh, I don't ever want to feel like I can't do something the day that I, and you know, I've told you guys a million times, you know, the day that I couldn't play at the level at which I wanted to anymore in the NFL, I retired. I just couldn't do yeah. the job after 10 years. I just couldn't play the way that I knew I could. Then it was time for me to go do something else. I think like the day that I can't do something or the day that I'm not able to go out and do what I want, I think that's the time you're just like, okay, I'm fucking good. Let me ride down the road. Yeah, yeah but I think what mortality, it's not so much the fear of death. It's just the knowledge of limited time mm -hmm. is crucial because I think humans have a tendency to put stuff off. And so, I mean, the big change I made after this experience was something that I've always wanted to do my whole life. And so he's like, oh, I'll do that someday. Oh, and it was a realization, <laughs> actually buying a place in California. So I, I ended up, I've always wanted to retire on the California coast. I miss Northern California. And I was like, oh, I'll do it someday. And this made me realize that, well, someday maybe like tomorrow is yeah, the last yeah. where, day. Uh, where'd you and buy so, a place? Uh, where at? in Mend Mendocino? Oh, nice. uh, oh yeah, oh southern, very nice. Southern Mendocino Coast. Um, oh yeah, but it's I think where the mortality thing is relevant for people is just giving them a wake up call and saying, hey, you know what? Uh, you can't delay things into the future that you value and that you want to do indefinitely because at a certain point the future is gone, mm -hmm. and there's and then your your physical ability to do th certain things is going to mm -hmm. evaporate over time. So um, that's where I think knowing having a visceral sense of your mortality is yeah. a helpful motivator. So, but yeah, I should actually take off soon cause I got to yeah. go. Okay. Um, no. Parent. 
Yeah. It's part of the deal. No, I got a system. Yeah. No, t- thanks so much for yeah, taking the you. time, man. It was a great chat. And, uh, you know, the listeners, now you know. You need yeah. the Taoist yeah, book of trying. lovemaking. No, yeah. Um, I'll find it. I'll literally, I will. You gotta find it. I'll find it. I will put it in the show notes. Yeah, I'll send you a link. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it, uh, dude. It's still to this day I can remember the cover. It had like a flower and it was purple, and it said Taoist Secrets of Lovemaking. There we go. All Thanks right. for listening to another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Ing, 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 ing. Take care. Thanks again, man. Thanks, Doc. All right. Thanks Thank a lot, you. guys. It was Bye. fun. Take it easy. All right. And cut. Ted, I'll, I'll reach out with an email. We'd love to send you some Power Athlete gear and show okay. appreciation, man. So thanks again for taking the time. We'll, uh, we'll link up the book and the show notes and make sure everybody dives a little bit deeper. Great. Cool. Thanks a lot, guys. Take care. Thank you. Take go, bears. Yeah. Yeah, go Bears. Yeah. Yeah, Go Bears. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Check out Ted Slingerland's book on spontaneity called Trying Not to Try, anywhere books are sold. And guys, I'm going to give you a heads up. This week, I'm not going to talk a ton about the Power Athlete Symposium, but something that is related. If you've been thinking about getting tickets to the event and you're like, ah, I don't know, it's kind of expensive, I have a challenge for you. It is our annual Toes Forward Challenge. Basically, what you're going to do is you're going to snap a pick of your feet, your little hooves, facing toes forward in some sort of unique environment, and you're going to post that to Instagram. You're going to hashtag Toes Forward and hashtag 2018PAS for Power Athlete Symposium. And if you forget all this, you can just go to our website or go to our Instagram and cut and paste the things that you need to tag. But basically, you can win your tickets to the Power Athlete Symposium in addition to so many other amazing prizes from all of the people that are going to be represented at the Power Athlete Symposium. You're going to get things like a Kevlar sandbag from Sornex, a PowerDot EMS device. You'll get an Epic Bar survival kit, 12 pounds of stay classy meats, a signed copy of Wired to Eat by Rob Wolf, six months of train heroic training, my God, a $100 gift card to the Good Athlete Project for some swag, a true form running progression, and a box of Deuce Gym hand-selected apparel. You can get all that stuff just for taking a little snapshot of your little tootsies, toes forward in our athletic stance. So go ahead and do that, guys. Hop on Instagram. It's like the easiest possible thing you can do. I don't know. It's a selfie. It's a footsie. Somehow we can figure out a hashtag for that. Until next time. Bye.